is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of March 13th through 17th, back into a nice normal week of five nice normal Jeopardy episodes, although the high school reunion tournament was Lots of fun. But before we get into the games, how are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing okay. I'm on spring break. I think I mentioned that in the last episode. Yeah. Has it been as restorative as you hoped? It's been fine. Kids yeah. are exhausting. Mm-hmm. We had to get mm-hmm. plumbing work done. Mm-hmm. Fun. So, you know, normal stuff. But yeah. at least I haven't also had to go to work, so... Yep. Fine. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing okay. Lots of things keeping me running around. Mostly good stuff with work and family and whatnot. But it's it's, it's very busy around mm-hmm. here. I uh, started playing a video game. I actually started a couple of weeks ago, and then things have gotten a little a little crazy. But I'm looking forward to getting back to it. I don't think it's going to take a lot of time to play. It's called What Remains of Edith Finch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know video game terminology well enough to know for sure what, like, how to just, how, like, like how you classify it. But you're, like, exploring a spooky old house. Mm -hmm. And then you find items in the house that tell you, you know, part of the characters, like family history, and you're trying to like fill in a family tree and kind of understand kind of, you know, what's gotten us to this point. I don't know if there's going to be like action in in the game, or if we're just like, you know, kind of uncovering, you know, like solving, solving the mystery or whatever. But so far, it's all solving the mystery. And it's very eerie. It's, yeah. it's it's very immersive and it's and it is it's it gets a little dark. There's some mm-hmm. dark stuff, but really, I mean, beautifully done, but unsettling. But I'm enjoying it a lot. Yeah, I've yeah. heard good things. Yeah, yeah. Someday I'll play cool. a video game you haven't heard of, but I think not yet. Right? <laughs> I yeah, we've got a ways to go. I think. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. All right, should we talk about? Jeopardy. Probably. So Monday, March 13th, Ken Jennings is hosting as he was last Friday. And our contestants are Karen Rittenbach, an academic tutor from Freehold, New Jersey. Roy Camara, a grocery specialist from Crawfordville, Florida. And Stephen Webb, a data scientist from Longmont, Colorado, whose four-day cash winnings total $100,881. And the Jeopardy round categories are Tis Shakespeare advertising icons fill in the blanket blossom the big bang theory which is sort of funny with ken hosting again i think and call me cat c-a-t in quotation marks a cat will begin each correct response i do wonder i mean because these you know they go into a database and get pulled I do wonder if they were just kind of hoping that Mayim would be hosting. Yeah. Or if it was, I mean, I, 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 I seem to recall 
that we were told at the start of the season that Ken would host until January and then Mayim would host afterward. That sticks in my brain as something we were told. That sounds right. I'm not sure I would have recalled it, but yeah, I think I think I remember something like that. Hmm. I don't yeah, know. Maybe yeah. that was the intention. Yeah. I caught the theme after the Big Bang Theory, but Blossom, the Big Bang Theory, and Call Me Cat are all Mayim's shows. Mm-hmm. The ones before that are, are not part of that theme, right? Yeah. Presumably not. Yeah. I don't think Fill in the Blanket is a, yeah. a sitcom feature. Not, and neither is Mayim like, an advertising icon, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say icon, but she has done advertisements. Yeah, oh, well. yeah, I'm sure. Uh, Fill in the Blanket turned out to be a harder category than you might have anticipated you might have anticipated that it would be fluffy <laughs> <laughs> um, they got the 200 and 400 uh q blank five letters is a quilt c blank r nine letters so it starts with c ends with r nine letters total comforter steven got that one but then the 600 800 and the thousand dollar were all triple stumper d starts with d five letters so that was a duvet roy t- tried downy so sort of heading for an adjective instead of the um, type of blanket type of blanket yes at the 800 dollar level heated world war ii flying suits led to the patent e blank starts with e eight letters so that's the electric blanket nobody tried a guess and then it reduces stress for some starts with w ends with d eight letters that's a weighted blanket yeah, those two were tough because I don't think of, I, I don't know, I, I don't think of electric by itself. Right. I don't think of weighted by itself. Yeah. You know what I mean? In some ways, it would have helped if it was like E-blank blanket. Right. Even if yeah. they hadn't given a letter count, maybe even. Right, because we don't we don't call a duvet a duvet blanket or a comforter a comforter blanket or a quilt a quilt blanket usually. Yeah. So... It set us up to think it would be a standalone word, or at least set me up. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Mm-hmm. I'm um, a big fan of weighted blankets, though. They're pretty nice. I they're didn't think great. I would care. Yeah. They're great. They're great. <laughs> they're great. Yeah. <laughs> I like when other members of my family go away so I can steal their weighted blanket. <laughs> You know, you could just buy another one. I know, I know. But that would be giving in. I cannot do that. It seems like a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Giles Corey situation. Mm. That is a very random Crucible reference or Salem yeah. Witch Trials reference. I don't know. Pretty deep. Yeah. The advertising icons at 200. Did I, We talked about this on the podcast, right? Bartholomew oh, yeah. is the first name of this anthropomorphic legume in ads for planters. Mm-hmm. That's Mr. Peanut. We talked about mm-hmm. Mr. Peanut dying and then being reborn yes. and going through his life phase. Uh-huh. Yeah. His life cycle. Yeah. That was okay. that was an that was a very strange yeah. That's Revelation. A, yes, it's a, it's a strange episode in history. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, Daily Devil number one is in the Tis Shakespeare category at the $400 level. Pick number eight. Karen finds that she's at negative 800. Steven's at 3,000. Roy is at zero. And she bets only 500, which I think is hmm. the incorrect choice. Yeah. <laughs> you can bet up to 1,000. It can get you out of the red. 
But I don't know. Maybe she's not confident in Shakespeare and doesn't want to go farther in the red. Anyway, gets the clue. These are Richard III's beastly last five words. And she gets it correct with my, what is my kingdom for a horse? Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Stephen has a good lead at 8,000. Roy is at 3,800 and Karen is at 700. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. Water on the earth, a stone groove, governors, deep thoughts, dynasties of Spain, and the same consonant thrice. Thrice. Not necessarily in a row, though, because I don't know that there are any words that have the same consonant thrice in a row. That was a a tougher category, at least in my mind. The same consonant thrice? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. The $2,000 level past tense word for pants that pool around the feet puddled. Like, I'm not sure that's... If I had to write a clue for puddled... (laughs) That's not where you would have started. I'm not sure I would have gotten there, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I had the same thought. I was like, I don't normally start with pants. (laughs) Well, I think of puddled, but I guess that's what makes it a $2,000 clue. Yeah. In the stone groove category at the $800 level, the clue is this band was on the 2013 chart singing, if you're lost and alone or you're sinking like a stone, carry on. Sounds like it was a triple stumper. That's fun. Lowercase f-u-n period. I wonder if they would have required you to say period. Hmm. To make sure that they got it. Probably not. Because Probably not. Refer to the band. You just call them fun. But mm-hmm. that's a I guess it. that's a thing that I've seen come up in trivia a number of times is that there's a period at the end of that band name. Yeah. So for like, I don't know, Learned League or any written medium, you'd probably need the period. Mm hmm. Yeah. A while back, I, we had a fun name that tune round at my at my local pub trivia where the unifying theme that you could figure out for for points and also to help you you know back out anything you were stumped on was bands with punctuation marks in mm. the name of the band so there's fun there's wham mm-hmm. there's, there's panic BS. at the disco panic, panic at the disco mm-hmm. uh, i can't remember what else was in there it's been a while now but yeah yeah that would be fun. Deep thoughts I, was heavy, <laughs> as you would expect from the from the category title. It made yeah. me think of deep thoughts with Jack Handy. With Jack Handy, <laughs> it's the better deep thoughts, I think. Yeah, I I wish it had been that. <laughs> Instead, we had Nietzsche, all of, Nietzsche <laughs> Buddhism, and all life is suffering, or n- n- desire desire lies at the root of suffering. Is that a movie quote? Like. Desire, yeah, Buddhism. That's is, just what it yeah. is. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deep thoughts with Jack Andy would be a fun category. Yeah, maybe they could do like deep thoughts as a Jeopardy round, and then deep thoughts with Jack Handy as a double Jeopardy round. Yeah. That would be fun. That would um, be fun. Yeah, Daily Double number two is in Water on the Earth at the sixteen hundred dollar level, and Roy finds it. It's pick number two. He makes it a true Daily Double with his forty two hundred dollars. Stevens at eight thousand, and Karen is at seven hundred. He gets the clue Switzerland claims about 134 square miles of this alpine lake, France about 90. And he gets it right. It's Lake Geneva. And then Daily Double number three is pick number 20. It's in the governor's category, also at the $1,600 level. And Roy finds this one as well. He's at 11,200. Stephen's at 15,200. Karen's at 700. And Roy bets it all. 
He bets it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a big bet. It's a big bet. It's as, as big as you can bet. Yeah. Uh, gets the clue. The only governor elected in two states. He held office in Tennessee from 1827 to 1829. And then, of course, in Texas from 1859 to 1861. And he gets it correct with who is Sam Houston. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Roy is in a huge lead with 28,000. I mean, I guess we've seen bigger leads, but not against <laughs> Steven, big. I think, yeah. right? Like, no, no, Steven's yeah. worth a lock most games. Yeah, Steven's at 19,200, Karen's at 1,500. The final Jeopardy category is literature, and the clue is a 2006 book was titled The Poem That Changed America, this 50 years later. We go to Karen first. She hasn't come up with anything. She started to write the first letter, but there's not there's nothing really there. And she's wagered 400 over 1500. So that drops her down to 1100. Stephen has it correct with what is Howl, the Ginsburg poem. Ken notes landmark beat poem of the beat generation. He has wagered everything, which is the right move here. Oh, maybe not, actually. I mean, I guess he could wager not. He, we're expecting we're expecting Roy, if he misses and made a cover bet, to drop just under Steven. Yeah. So maybe the better move here is to wager nothing or almost nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Strategically. If you think Roy knows how to wager, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's what it comes down to, right? Like, do you think, like, do you think that Roy knows what to do. Or I guess also, how do you feel about literature? You know? Yeah. Anyway, he's wagered everything and it pays off for him because it brings him up to 38,400. So that, that works out. And Roy tried, what does I know why the caged bird sings? You know, if you don't know poetry well, you know, that's a, well, I know why the caged bird sings is a memoir, but Maya Angelou was a poet. Yeah. You know, so like, you know, that's it's a fine try. He's wagered ten thousand four hundred one, which is a cover bet, drops him down to seventeen thousand five hundred ninety nine, and so Stephen squeaks out a win. Yes. So on Tuesday, we have the contestants Jessica Ashu, a policy director from San Francisco, California; Long Win, a retired engineer from Las Vegas, Nevada, and Stephen Webb, a data scientist from Longmont, Colorado, whose five-day cash winnings total $139,281. The Jeopardy round categories, 11 letter words, the title TV characters buddies, in the cookie jar, here's your report card, be in geography, and a pleasure to have in class. Isn't that all of us? (laughs) I believe it is, yes. And we had that that question that was in the pleasure to have in class, that was just a day after the Learned League question. Yes, after um, I rem- figured out exactly what pair of words I should be thinking of and then went for the wrong one. Oh, you went with plebeian? I did. And um, and I and I knew it was wrong as soon as what I saw, like, you know, like, it was, yeah, smacked my forehead. Yes. Yeah. The clue was, it was the term for upper class people in ancient Rome. Today, it'd be more... For fans of author Cornwell or actress Clarkson, and those are patricians. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, I guess I guess this count. I I don't know the uh, eight hundred dollar level of the eleven letter words and any imaginary ideal place or the location of the Dumbo ride at Disney World, mm-hmm. like Fantasyland. I 
Is that really a word? Uh, Is that really a word? Yeah. I mean, I guess. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure I've seen it much at all outside of a Disney World context. Yeah, because to me, if I'm talking about just an imaginary ideal place, I would think of it could be a fantasy land, but that would be with a space. Yeah. But... I mean, Jessica got it, mm-hmm. so it's not like not like it was impossible to to figure out. I just yeah, didn't didn't see it. Yeah, isn't this the second time in like two or three weeks that we've had a reference to the Dumbo ride? Maybe. Yeah, I think so. Yes, I yeah. think last week. Yeah, because I was because Dumbo was one that had a ride. Yeah, and you mentioned mm-hmm. that it's at it's the only one that's at every Disney. Yeah. Yeah, all of the Disney resorts. Yes. I guess I think I probably said park whenever that was. And then I was like, well, you know, like Disney World has four theme parks, right? Because there's like Magic That's Kingdom fair. and Epcot, okay. right? Like it's not like Complex. they have it. At, yeah. But like, yeah, but it's at, you know, it's in Florida. It's in California. It's in Paris. It's in, you know, Tokyo. Like all all the, all the, all the Disney. Yeah. All the, Cities. all the. Yes. Yeah. So I don't, <laughs> it, it seems weird that it's come up twice in a in such a short time span like it it makes me wonder if like one of the writers was like you know planning their disney world stuff and like coming into work being like you know what you know what fact i could put in here yeah they're they're planning their trip at work and someone walks into the cubicle and they're like no i'm doing research i'm writing questions this is a question about fantasy land it's just Um, yeah just couldn't like tab away fast enough you know Mm -hmm. yeah that seems right uh, Daily Double number one is in. Here's your report card at the $600 level. And Long finds it at the 14th pick. He makes it a true Daily Double. He's at 1600 with Steven at 6600 and Jessica at 2400 And he gets the clue put out by the Air Force in 1995. A report on a 1947 incident here is subtitled Fact versus Fiction in the New Mexico Desert. And he gets it correct. It's Roswell. Hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Stephen has the lead, as is the custom, at 9,600. Long is at 6,000. Jessica's at 3,400. The double Jeopardy categories are Literary London, Lord of the Dings, Diseases, Scrambled U.S. History, Banking and Finance, and Contronyms. I thought Scrambled U.S. History was tricky. Like somehow doing the anagram along with remembering the history. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah. Big deal in 1803, a usual hip scenario. That's Louisiana Purchase. 1894 uprising, sober wine likely. That's the Whiskey Rebellion. Yeah, they were tricky ones. Yeah. And it's like you have to, you have to like solve two puzzles at once. Right. And that, yeah, I agree. Mm hmm. With a unfortunate, like, couple of misses at the $2,000 of Lord of the Dings. The clue is, in It's a Wonderful Life, little Zuzu Bailey says, every time a bell rings, this happens. Stephen guessed, what's an angel gets its wings? Long guessed, what's an angel gets its wing? But it's an angel gets his wings. Mm-hmm. That is the line from the movie, because, I don't know, I guess angels, I don't know. <laughs> can only be males or maybe the women don't get wings i don't know but that's the line from the movie yeah and they were it was specific so yeah unfortunately they missed those 
Yes. I mean, good on Lung for trying, you know, buzzing, buzzing in and making a slight, a slight change, right? Yeah. 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 But just neither one was quite right. Yeah. Right enough. Yeah. Do you have anything? I do not. Okay. Daily Double number two is the first pick. I missed it. It's in Literary London at the $1,200 level. Jessica finds it. She is at 3400 Stephen's at 9600 Long's at 6000 which we just mentioned. She bets it all and gets the clue. This 1881 Mark Twain novel takes place in London's poorer areas as well as in some of its ritzier locales. And she guesses what is a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Unfortunately, I think the time period is a little bit off there. Uh, it's the Prince and the Popper. Yes. And Daily Double number three is in Scrambled U.S. History, also at the $1,200 level. And Long finds this one. Um, he's at 12400 with Stephen at 17600 and Jessica at 2800 And he makes it a true Daily Double. <laughs> Similar to the prior day, right? This is yeah. That's two really big true Daily Double Daily double threes. Yeah, pick right? number 20. He gets the clue, 1820s announcement, no credo on merit. He can't think of it. He ends up saying, what is the era of good feelings, rather than saying nothing. That's not correct, though. It's the Monroe Doctrine. It is the right time period. Though. Yeah, he got he got to the right time period, the right the right president, but didn't unscramble the, the anagram in time. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, after that big miss by Long, Stephen has a lock game at 18,000. Long's at 400. He's still in the game. And Jessica is at 6,000. The final Jeopardy category is countries of the world. And the clue is part of the largest contiguous land empire during the 1200s and 1300s. Today, it's the world's second largest landlocked country. Long got it correct with what is Mongolia. Of course, not the Mongol Empire anymore. And he bet all 400. Jessica also got it correct with what is Mongolia and wagered 5,000. And Stephen missed it. He wrote what is Mongolia, then crossed it off and wrote Kazakhstan, which mm-hmm. I believe is Kazakhstan the largest landlocked country? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he maybe was just going back and forth between which one is bigger. But it didn't matter. He wagered 2,000, but he won anyway. So that... Brings us to Wednesday. The contestants are Govind Dandekar, a solutions architect from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Gwen Lockman, a PhD candidate from Missoula, Montana, and Stephen Webb, a data scientist from Longmont, Colorado, whose six-day cash winnings total $155,281. And the Jeopardy round categories are literary villains, standing on a board sideways, alphabetically next, (laughs) the morning after, Hangover Cures, and Hair of the Dog. Mm-hmm. And Stephen made a comment like, oh, did you write this board for me? Which I don't know if he's a big surfer or if he is suggesting he that he's a, a heavy drinker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah like, <laughs> just, just feeling it today. Yeah. Um, that could be it. Had a couple of those double tree. Bar, hotel bar martinis lobby, the lobby the, the lobby bar it's right there yeah right there. uh-huh uh could explain i mean i'm gonna put him on blast a little bit his miss at the 200 dollars level of the morning after april 16 1912 morning editions of some newspapers reported that this had been saved later editions had worse news and he rang in and guessed what's the lusitania man it's a 200 dollars clue 
you take the low-hanging fruit, man. It is the Titanic. Lusitania is a $600 question mini- minimum. Minimum. <laughs> because you have to get past Titanic in your brain to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like trivia trivia has like a couple sets of skills. Like one, one is like knowing a bunch of stuff. And then the other is like filtering what you know through like sort of the sanity check of like, would they ask for this? Yeah. Is this, is this what they're asking for? Yeah. yeah. More than I just had, like- yeah. I had a friend I used to play trivia with Trey Kelso, may he rest in peace, who like, he just knew everything. He knew every, every minor character, actor, every lyric of every Broadway show. Right. And so like the thing that made us a good team was that he knew everything. And I was the one who'd be like, Trey, they're not, they're not, they're never going to ask you for that. That's not what they're looking for. <laughs> they're never <laughs> like go up, go up three levels, find yeah. something, find something less obscure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also know some stuff, but you know, right. Trey knew- <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's when you're with someone like that, it's just like, okay. Yeah, I will say Stephen redeemed himself. The rest of the category, he he was the only one to get any of the others correct. So yeah, it's fine. He got it. Uh, the alphabetically next, I thought was pretty challenging. Yeah, hard to hard to kind of like. I feel like ultimately, in in the short amount of time you have, you're you're really just guessing. You can't necessarily mm-hmm. be sure. Especially yep. since the clues are short. Like, there's not a lot of talking for you to think while Ken's talking, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Zodiac sign after Scorpio. It's Taurus. Steven got it. Yeah. But I have to go through, like, this Scorpio. Right. Is there one that starts with SCU? Is there one yeah. that starts with SH? Is there one that starts with. S- yeah, no, it's. Yeah. Taurus came to mind, and I was like, I hope that's it. Could be. Yep. Might not. Yeah. NFL team name, not the city after the Rams. That was the Ravens. Ravens. But yeah, I would I would not have had a prayer at Which, answering yeah. that with confidence. Right. Because my mind was like Raiders. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, no, eyes before M. What would be after that? And by then it was, you know, time was up. Mm-hmm. Daily double number one is in that morning after category. It's at the $800 level. Gwen finds it. She's at 2,400. Steven's at 400. Govin's at 400 as well. It's pick number 10. And she bets 1,500. Gets the clue. An October 9th, 1871 headline declared this city was utterly destroyed, both north and south sides, smoking ruins. And she was not able to offer a guess, but that's Chicago. Chicago. The north and south sides were the, were the clue there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No other city has a north side and a south side. Hmm. At least from what I've heard. Hmm. And uh, I'm not going to take any challenges on that. So at hmm. the end of the Jeopardy round, Stephen hmm. is at 47. <laughs> we're moving on 4,600. Gwen is at 2,500. <laughs> and Govin's at 2,000. Double Jeopardy categories are world travel, biblical first names, pop culture, those darn Nebraskans, <laughs> tough science, and four letter words with the F in quotation marks. Jeopardy writers really just getting real close real close to that <laughs> f-bomb walking, man yep mm-hmm. just walking, walking that line. line yeah i think honestly i don't know but if i were in a really dominant position like steven was maybe i'd test it out on one of those clues you know what i mean <laughs> by the end of the round like they they took the 400 hundred dollar clue last so i don't know if i got in maybe i'd just go for it mm-hmm. could i could i 
pop us back to the, the Jeopardy red for a quick second and notice note that we had two Disney categories right ne- Disney clues right next to each other at the two hundred dollar level, both of which have Magic Kingdom rides. So I, I think that my theory stands. Oh, the Goofy and the yeah, the Goofy has a Goofy has like the like the kitty coaster, and then mm-hmm. the Seven Dwarfs also have a roller coaster. I'm gonna keep cherry picking evidence. <laughs> Well, then we also had Cruella DeVille in the Literary Villains. Yes, yes, we did. Yep. Mm-hmm. Although they mentioned it through the Dottie Smith book. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, like I think I think that whoever this is who's working on their on their Disney trip planning was like, okay, like that's it's too much Disney. I've gotta gotta reroute this one. <laughs> How else could I possibly use a clue about Disney? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Back to it's back okay. to Double Jeopardy. Back to Double Jeopardy. I liked the name those darn Nebraskans. That's a fun, (laughs) a fun inside Jeopardy joke. Yeah. All right. All right. So in biblical first names at the $1,200 level, not the one who was raised from the dead, but a beggar of this name became a patron saint of lepers. Stephen got that. That's Lazarus. What's really interesting to me here is that Maybe maybe Catholicism has a different interpretation, but I was always taught that that story of Lazarus and the rich man, like the Lazarus that they're referencing here, the beggar Lazarus, that that was a parable, right? Like that that's a that's a story Jesus is like making up to you know communicate a deeper truth, right? Like the parables are not supposed to yeah. be historical or factual; they are they are you know. They are uh, lessons within a story. Yeah. So I, I, I was surprised to hear that the Lazarus from that story is Would a patron be... saint because yeah. I always heard of him as, you know, a, a, a fictional figure, right? Like, so, like Jesus makes up the story to communicate, you know, something. And, you know, he's the only figure in a parable who's given a name, which is interesting. Oh. Yeah, it is interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe maybe there's an interpretive tradition around that, right? Like, you know, I don't know. I oh, haven't. Yeah. yeah, I just Googled it for a minute to try and figure out what was going on with, you know, why is this person a, a patron saint when I had always heard of them as, you know, somebody who did not historically exist. Right. And I and I haven't uncovered a very clear answer yet, but I don't know. It's interesting. It was interesting. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in pop culture at the $1,200 level, and Gwen finds it as the 11th pick. Stephen hasn't found a Daily Double yet this week, is that right? Mm, correct. Yeah. It's been a long time. Yep. Gwen's at 4100 Stephen's at 10200 Govind is at 2000 Gwen wagers 3500 and gets the clue, the two individuals with the most Grammy nominations are this married couple, tied with 88 nominations each. And she gets it correct. It's Beyonce and Jay-Z. Yep. It's a power and couple. And then she I play, she like doesn't really get in until for, for the rest of the round. Mm-hmm. She just she just pretty much flatlines at that point. Daily Devil number three is a $2,000 level of biblical names. And Govind finds this one. He is at 4,000, Stephen's at 11,000, and Gwen is at 7,600. Uh, and he w- wagers only 2,000. Mm. Mm. You've been in the audience. You've watched Stephen be dominant. Yep. This is your shot. You gotta go he for it. He wagers 2,000. Gets a clue. The son of Abraham and Hagar and the kingly husband of Jezebel gave their names to these two characters on board the Pequod. 
I liked this clue. Mm-hmm. I thought this was a really good clue. Um, and he gets it correct with who are Ahab and Ishmael, although not in that order. I thought that was a very clever clue. I like that one a lot. Yeah. But, but he could have, could have doubled up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Stephen has gotten himself into lock position. He's at 20,200. Gwen and Govind are tied at 8,000 each. The final Jeopardy category is art exhibitions. And the clue is in 1898, what's been called the first blockbuster art show was devoted to him and put on for Queen Wilhelmina's coronation. This was a triple stumper. So we go to Govind first. He has tried who is Van Gogh. It's a good guess, but not correct. He's wagered a thousand, which drops him down to 7,000. In a tie, you people tend to say, you know, kind of all or nothing, but I don't know. I mean, they're not playing for the win here. Exactly. It's a tie for a second. Like, yeah. how much do you want to really like go for it i don't know yeah um we go to gwen she had who is b u there's a third letter there that wasn't really like legible not really sure who she was going for she wagered seven thousand so that drops her down to a thousand and gives her third place and steven tried who is monk and that's not correct either he's wagered 199 dropping him down to twenty thousand and one. we were looking for rembrandt here yeah so you needed to know that queen Wilhelmina was queen of the netherlands Hmm. van gogh's a decent guess for netherlands but rembrandt was the the one to go for here yeah so that takes us to thursday where we have the contestant sarah matthews a middle school teacher from loxahatchee florida Andrew Brady, a leadership development consultant from Rochester, New York, and Stephen Webb, a data scientist from Longmont, Colorado, whose seven-day cash winnings total $175,282, and I moved down another on the list. Mm, my condolences. Yeah, thanks. You cannot, you know, I can only move down. I can never move up. It's I'm, true. It's true. But real bummer. Mm-hmm. We have the Jeopardy round categories, comic influences, world universities, love in so many words, Hear ye, hear ye, with Y-E in quotation marks. The leader before the leader, and what kind of foul am I? I thought what kind of foul am I was fun. A nation bordered by Bulgaria, Turkey. Turkey. (laughs) To complain or grumble in an ill-tempered way? That's a grouse. (laughs) I managed to switch dove and hawk in my brain or something. (laughs) (laughs) It's like conflict, it's a hawk. Yeah. Yep. A politician who advocates for peace during conflicts with other countries. I was like, ah, bird and international conflict equals hawk. (laughs) The opposite of that. That's a dove. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, Sarah did pretty well, like this round and really this game. She she did a good job keeping keeping pace. She did especially well in that ye category. I have I have never heard yeasty used as an adjective for a person. Yeah, me neither. But apparently, it is an adjective that can also describe someone with youthful exuberance. I would feel really weird calling someone yeasty. It, it sounds like maybe they have a fungal infection of some exactly, kind. Exactly. Right? It, seem, like, it seems like, ah, oh, you should see a doctor. You are <laughs> Right? That's... 
Yeah. And then we had Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, in the leader before the leader instead of in the ye category. Yes. Yes, we did. I took note of that. It always it always gets me a little mixed up when there are when there are when there's crossover between categories like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He could have been a ye. <laughs> could have been a ye. They also could have had ye, you know, Kanye. Yeah. There. But I'm glad they didn't. Yes. Glad they didn't. He has mm-hmm. had enough attention. Yeah. Ever. Mm-hmm. What was Ken referencing in the leader before the leader? $600 level. The clue is the man who would be king, Juan Carlos, is seen here. They showed a picture with his predecessor, this general and dictator. Sarah got it right with who is Franco. And he said, Francisco Franco is still dead. What it, I have no idea. But it sounded oh. like it was a quote, right? All right. I found it. I found it. It is a G- generalissimo. Francisco Franco is still dead is a catchphrase that originated in 1975 during the first season of NBC's Saturday Night, now, now called Saturday Night Live. And which okay. mocked the weeks-long media reports of the impending death of Francisco Franco. Okay. Interesting. It was one of the first catchphrases from the series to enter the general lexicon. I would argue that it has now exited the general lexicon, but... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it might have, but, you know. You know yeah. All right. Okay. So that's, that's what now he was up know. to. Now, now you know. know. Ken wrote a whole book about comedy and, like, the history of comedy. So, like, count on him to know... Know that thing. Uh, yeah. Archaic SNL catchphrases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daily Double One is in love in so many words. It's at the $800 level, and Sarah finds it at the 20th pick. She's at 4600 She's tied with Steven. Andrew's at negative 400 She wagers 3000 and gets the clue. In a play, this character says, Ah, credulity of love. Roxanne will think each word inspired by herself. And she gets it right. It's Cyrano de Bergerac. So, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Sarah has taken the lead. She's at 9,000. Steven is at 8,000. Andrew's at negative 400. And the double Jeopardy categories are U.S. Islands, the arts with A in quotation marks, food stuff, letter perfect, scientific laws and theorems, and a heavenly body in music. I'm sort of amused that they decided to ask for both cereals named after young ooze flintstone fruity pebbles and cocoa pebbles <laughs> yeah these two serious <laughs> just make it make it extra difficult yeah sarah got that one the 1600 dollars level of u.s islands named for a spanish viceroy not a bunch of whales it's the largest of washington state's san juan islands sarah rang in but then i think she said like oh sorry or I think that was Sarah. Maybe it was there. Maybe it was somewhere else. I remember somebody like apologizing for not yeah. having a response charmingly this week. Anyway, it's it's Orcas, Orcas Island, like Orcas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why. Would, apparently. Yeah, yeah. So not a bunch of whales. That that's what that clue was getting at. Orcas Island is where what remains of Edith Finch is set. Oh wow! Um, so yeah. you knew that. Mm-hmm, I did. I also went to a wedding on Orcas Island many years ago. Now, well, okay. um, it was a it was a very beautiful place. That was I was I was happy to go there for my friends. But getting there from the East Coast is a haul. Yeah, it's on, <laughs> it's it's the other coast. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, even once you get to Seattle, you still have to like get to like a fairly remote island. Gotcha. You can okay. you can take a ferry that takes like you know like departs once a day and takes several hours which means you need to leave a whole day earlier for the wedding. Mm-hmm. But we were able to get like a little flight, but it's us out there. 
but yeah, I I, I knew it because because of the wedding and also because of the video game. Nice. Yeah. Video games teach you things. Mm-hmm. Which we we know. Yeah. Daily double number two is in that U.S. islands category at the eight hundred dollar level. Pick number nine. Sarah finds this one as well. She's at seventy eight hundred. Stevens at fourteen thousand. Andrew is at zero, and she wagers five thousand. He gets the clue, despite its name, this island doesn't actually have any wineries, but there are a couple of liquor stores in Edgartown. And she gets it correct with what is Martha's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And Sarah finds Daily Double number three as well. She's found all three in this game, and Steven still hasn't found one this week, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Which is which is mind-boggling, because he's answering a lot of questions. Daily Double number three is at the $1,600 level of a heavenly body in music. It's the 29th pick. Sarah wagers... 4,000 of her 15,600. Stephen's ahead of her with 24,400, which he's gotten all from these non-daily double clues. Andrew's at zero at this point. She gets the clue, this singer, also from Northern Lands, recorded the Comet song for a film based on Finland's beloved Moomin books. And she doesn't seem to know, and she seems to be guessing when she says, I don't know, Bjork, and... (laughs) That's correct. She gets it. It's a good guess. Yep. It's a, it's a solid guess. Nice work. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Andrew is not playing. He took a swing and a miss at the last $2,000 clue, which dropped him in the red. Steven is at 22400 and Sarah's at 17600 The final Jeopardy category is 1980s movies, and the clue is a writer and producer of this movie said he wanted it to be like a Western or James Bond film, only it takes place in the 30s. Sarah guessed, what is Bugsy Malone? That is incorrect, and she wagered 15000 And Stephen guessed, what is Top Secret? Which is also incorrect, and he wagered 12801 But it is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. My, my nine-year-old figured it out. Nailed it. Yeah, he, baby's first correct final Jeopardy when all the contestants it, like went on a triple stumper or a you know double stumper in this case, right? Like, nice. yeah, <laughs> it's a parenting milestone. Yeah, and so, I was like, nah, I'm pretty sure that's 1940s. No, no, yeah, it's the 30s. No. It's before mm-hmm. the war. Yes, yeah. I was like, there are Nazis. 1940. Yeah, no, nope, nope. He had it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he just said Indiana Jones because like I haven't let him watch all the movies. <laughs> I let him watch like I let him watch selected scenes from one of them. But yeah, no, he had it. I didn't have it. But he did. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And on Friday, we have the contestants Kelly Berry, a marketing communications specialist from Seattle, Washington. Mark Bernstein, a retired solution architect from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And Stephen Webb, a data scientist from Longmont, Colorado, whose eight-day cash winnings total $184,881. And the Jeopardy round categories are City of the Premiere, Shoe Know It, TV, you say, Try Me, Out and About the Universe, and Speak Your Truth. City of the Premiere was all classical music even though it didn't market itself as a classical music category right is this all yeah yeah i mean i mean some of it's operas and other is orchestral but it's all yeah it's all it's all at least a hundred years old or earlier it's pretty cool when was rhapsody oh maybe maybe rhapsody and blue was in the 30s oh 1924 it wasn't the 30s. 99 years 99 years almost it rounds it rounds you're you're fine yeah was it difficult enough for your taste? 
Y- yes, I think it was because the mm-hmm. 200, 400, 600, I feel like are pretty straightforward, pretty clear, like mm-hmm. good 1812 overture. If you know, it's Tchaikovsky, probably going to be Moscow. Carmen, if you don't know anything about it, right, there was the uh, neg bait. Stephen Guest wears Madrid, right? Mm hmm. Because it is set in it's Spain. set in Spain. You have to, you don't have to know that it's set in Spain. But if you do know that, that it's set in Spain, then that can be a mislead. Right. Because then you don't think about. It is a French opera. Yep. And then you just have to think about. And then the thousand was Tristan and Isolde with the help of King Ludwig. Munich. That's less than, like, that's less knowing opera and more knowing who, what was King Ludwig associated with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was good. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it's kind of there's kind of a multi step process, right? Because like, these aren't pieces that you associate with a city, right? You need to get from from the piece to a composer, Mm -hmm. or something. And, and then from there to a city, I thought it was a good challenging category. And I don't, I don't remember seeing something like this with with a classical music category before. No, I think I don't either. They didn't know. They didn't know Thirty Rock. That's okay. No, Doctor Spaceman. Yeah, one of the best characters on TV. Mm-hmm. Should I watch Only Murders in the Building? My wife has really enjoyed it. I haven't watched okay. it. She right. watches a lot more TV than I do, but she really liked it. So. Yeah, I, I've been hearing a lot about it recently. Hmm. As a teacher, do you have a take on Abbott Elementary? I think it's awesome. I okay. think it is hilarious and super good. And they've just recently had a, like the, the, the current kind of story arc is about like a private charter trying to essentially buy their school. Mm. It's very good. It has a very clear like opinion and take on that. And I agree with it a hundred percent. So perhaps that's why I like the current arc so much. Yeah. I'm sure there are people who would disagree, but. Mm. Yeah, it's hilarious too. Yeah, it's super good. I've watched a tiny bit of Ab- Abbott Elementary, like one episode, but D- it's what I've definitely watched, what I've watched was great. Yeah. Definitely worth it. Okay. Daily double number one is in the speaker truth category at the thousand dollar level. Pick number fourteen. Mark finds it. He is at twenty four hundred. Stevens at six hundred. Kelly's at thirty two hundred. And he bets it all. Gets the clue. Verb meaning to verify an article pre-publication before .org. It's a nonpartisan project to evaluate what politicians say. And he guesses what is PolitiFact, but that is FactCheck. FactCheck.org mm-hmm. is yeah. the, the .org. At the end mm-hmm. of the Jeopardy round, Stevens at 3,000, Mark's at 800, Kelly is at 5,200. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, the Caribbean, songs from movies, etymology, Irish authors shape up and ship out. Irish authors being very appropriate. This episode aired, episode. aired on St. Patrick's Day. That was pretty much the, I mean, Ken, Ken highlighted that it was St. Patrick's Day in the intro, but pretty much just Irish, Irish authors was the, was the nod yeah. to that, yes. which is fine. Do you do anything? I, I know St. Patrick's Day is a, a thing that has been celebrated. Do you personally or your family do St. Patrick's Day stuff? We have corned beef and cabbage. You have corned and, beef and cabbage. And we which is which is properly Irish American, not Irish. Yep. But that's okay. We're we're Irish American. Tiny bit I'm a tiny bit Irish American, but like hmm. like my mom's mom's mom was born in Ireland and like fathers can pass down 
culture, but like in my family, like I think it's been more the moms. And so even though it's a, it's a small percentage of my, of my heritage, like that's it's been, one it's been held it, on to. It's been held on to. Yes. Yeah. I sort of forgot on the morning of St. Patrick's day that it was St. Patrick's day. And I was, I was dropping my kids off at school and one of them was coincidentally wearing green. The other one was not, but the one who was wearing green had a meltdown anyway, because like there were all of these kids arriving in like shamrock tutus and like full themed outfits and like, you know, headwear. It's a lot. I, mm, I grew up in Massachusetts and people, people, I thought went pretty big for St. Patrick's day, but it just feels like the scale has changed since, since I was a kid. And also like sidebar, when I was growing up, there were three magical nighttime visitors of childhood right there was the there was santa claus there was the easter bunny and there was the tooth fairy Mm -hmm. and now apparently there's also the leprechaun we don't do the leprechaun but like there are there like kids are coming home from school with leprechaun traps and then the leprechaun is supposed to come the night before saint patrick's day and do pranks and there's also the elf on the shelf that is a lot of inflation that's a lot it's a lot it's too much yeah I, I tremble to think where we're going to be in another 25 years, right? Like my daughter is going to be like giving her children lectures being like, in my day, there was no Arbor Day dryad. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh um, man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, like, I don't know anything about the April Fool's Goblin. Like, <laughs> Where, where is this? Where are we going from here? What's, why, what's next? why are we coming up with more things that parents have to do more after the things. kids go to bed? <laughs> it's, it's insanity. Stop yeah. the madness. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I imagine that St. Patrick's Day is less of a thing in Colorado. It is not as big a deal out here. Yeah. Not as big a deal. Uh-huh. Anyway. All right. Anyway, there was an Irish authors category and that, yes. that is entirely enough. That's mm-hmm. that's fine. We don't need to we don't need to do leprechaun traps. It's okay. Yes. There was a triple um, stumper in the Caribbean at the $2000 level mm-hmm. that was also a learned league question this week. That's like twice two this week, I think. The clue was these islands, the northwesterly section of the Lesser Antilles, are they Ilsulven in Vent. Ilsulven. In French, which I got 100% right on the first try. Mm-hmm. And Kelly guessed one of the Windward Islands, but that's the other ones. Those these are the Leeward Islands. Yes, I got that Learned League question correct, having never heard of the Leeward Islands. Thinking of Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, <laughs> which has a whole plot point about the Lee, like the side that is protected. Mm-hmm. Do you, is this is it, was this also something you read when you were a kid? No. Absolutely mm. not. Okay. But there's no wrong way to know something. There's not. I, I had a I had a lucky correct guess. I'm curious whether other people had similar Mrs. Fritzbee of the Rats of Nim connection. I connections I should probably ask in a learned league group. See whether that came yeah, up for other people. Maybe. I'm sort of perplexed that the two thousand dollar level of Irish authors was at the two thousand dollar level. Born in Ireland in sixteen sixty seven, he wrote political pamphlets as well as satires. And that's Jonathan Swift. They had a picture of him. And I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think of Jonathan Swift as kind of an accessible and like go-to 
Irish yeah. author. I don't didn't think they gave the clue in a particularly tricky way. Just, no, just felt a little straightforward and low hanging fruit. Yeah, yeah, for, for a two thousand dollar level. I yeah, I thought so too. Daily Double Two is in etymology. I like that etymology category. Yeah. It's at the twelve hundred dollar level, and it's the twelfth pick. Mark finds this one. He's at 2400 at this point with Steven at 6200 and Kelly at 10400. He wagers 2000 and he gets the clue Greeks called this beast Megastruthos, big sparrow, or Struthocamelos, sparrow camel. We know it as this and he figured it out. It's an ostrich. That's fun, sparrow camel. Sparrow I like camel. It. That's a that is a name. That is yeah. a name for a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sparrow Camel. And Daily Double number three is the very next pick in the ship out category at the $1,600 level. So Yay, Mark finds this one too, back to back. He is up to 4,400. Stephen and Kelly are at the same score as they just were. And he wagers 4,000. And he gets the clue. Before its more famous departure from Plymouth, the Mayflower set sail from this directional English port. And oh boy. Mm. Oh boy. He took took a guess at Northampton, but it is in fact Southampton. Mm-hmm. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Steven, without a single daily double, is at 12,600. He has not gotten one all week. Incredible. <laughs> and he's suffering so terribly. Um, right. And Kelly, also without a single daily double, is at 11,600, just 1,000 behind Stephen. Mark, who had all three daily doubles, is at 4,000. Yeah, but he, <laughs> just, is like, he is like negative 4,400 on those daily doubles or something. Yeah, it's, it's yes. Oof. The final Jeopardy category is statehood. And the clue is Congress relented in 1890 after this prospective state said it would wait 100 years rather than come in without the women. Mark tried what is Wisconsin, right? First letter, wrong state. Yeah. He wagered 2,000, so that drops him down to 2,000. Kelly got it correct. What is Wyoming, the first mm-hmm. state to allow all women the vote? She has wagered 3,000. She's trying to stay above Mark in the event of a double up and get above Steven, I guess. She, that's probably not part of her thinking. You know, some people say you should take a potential zero wager into account, but like... Stephen's not going to make a zero wager. Nobody does. Nobody does that. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So she's she's trying to stay above Stephen if he misses and get a stay above Mark if he doubles up. That puts her at 14,600. And Stephen missed it. Missed it. He missed it. He tried what is Colorado. Yeah. I love that vote of confidence, but no, Mm -hmm. it was our neighbors to the north. Yeah. It was Wyoming. Also 1890. If you know your names, we're the Centennial State because we're 1876. Oh. oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah. He wagered 10,601, which is a cover bet. But since he missed, that drops him down to 1,999. I don't know if Mark was thinking about that when he wagered 2,000. But if he was, very clever work, very Mark. Very clever. Yeah. <laughs> very clever. And <laughs> right. maybe he was. You know, maybe yeah. he was. So Stephen, Stephen finishes in third place but we will see him again at the tournament of champions yes nice eight day run there yeah and nice upset kelly that was mm-hmm. a very solid game and without a daily double without a daily double out. 
Yeah. So that's the week. And this is the break where we remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potent potables. If you have a couple bucks a month to help us offset the costs of making the podcast, you would be very welcome to come on over and pledge your support. We've got a little bit of exclusive content on there. We try to get the quiz questions on, although (laughs) it's been a running gag, I guess, that we're hit or miss. We finish recording around midnight and then sometimes we don't think about it again until we're we're, it's a week later and we're, we're, we're plugging the Patreon again. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. You can, you can find some of the quiz questions on there and some other exclusive content that we put on there from time to time. And uh, your support is very much appreciated. Um, and of course there are more important things in the world than our Patreon. You can find some of the causes that are important to us in the show notes. Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? Okay. First one out of the way, Rembrandt. No. Okay. Fine Talking guess. About, okay. Uh, okay. What about the Chicago fire? Yes. Yes. Ooh. Ooh. Two in a row. Nice work. Mm. There were a lot we, of good options this week. There were a lot of good options. Yeah. It was It was almost painful to have so many good options and to have to not. I mean, I could. I guess I could have done It's a Wonderful Life, which mm-hmm. I presume would have been your third pick. Oh, I stayed away from that one. Yeah, I figured that the Great Chicago Fire was was going to be a good one to talk about. And mm-hmm. I didn't know much about it besides that it happened. So if if anybody else is in that boat, we'll, we'll learn some things. So the Great Chicago Fire was a conflagration that burned in Chicago during October 8 to 10, 1871. Fire killed approximately 300 people, destroyed roughly 3.3 square miles of the city, including over 17,000 structures and left more than 100,000 residents homeless. The fire's Claimed to have started at about 8.30 p.m. on October 8th, 1871, in or around a small barn which belonged to Patrick and Catherine O'Leary in a neighborhood southwest of the city center. There's been much speculation over the years on how the fire started. The most popular tale blames Mrs. O'Leary's cow, who allegedly knocked over a lantern. Other accounts state that a group of men were gambling inside the barn and knocked a lantern over. There was a widespread story about the cow knocking over the lantern while Mrs. O'Leary was milking, which was reported in the Chicago Tribune, but was retracted 22 years later in 1893 by the reporter who admitted that it was, you know, speculation or fabrication. That story really caught the public imagination, perhaps because it played into anti-Irish and anti-Catholic sentiments, the O'Leary's being Irish Catholic. Irish Catholic folks. The city had experienced drought conditions throughout the summer. It received only one inch of rain from July 4th to October 9th, so it was very dry. And there were strong southwest winds, winds from the southwest, which spread the fire toward the city. The fire spread was aided by the fact that wood was the predominant building material, a style called balloon frame, which really goes up in flames pretty easily. More than two thirds of the structures in Chicago at the time of the fire were made entirely of wood. And then most of the houses and buildings were topped with highly combustible tar or shingle roofs. All of the city's sidewalks and many roads were also made of wood. The Chicago Fire Department at that time had 185 firefighters with 17 horse-drawn steam pumpers. That was that was what they had for the whole city. Firefighters were dispatched to try to extinguish the fire, but they were inadvertently sent to the wrong location, which allowed the fire to grow as they were delayed getting to the right place. Um, 
When they did arrive, the fire had grown and spread to neighboring buildings and was progressing toward the central business district. Firefighters hoped that the south branch of the Chicago River and an area that had previously thoroughly burned in a, in a smaller fire would act as a natural fire break, you know, that the fire wouldn't be able to get past with, with nothing to burn. Mm-hmm. Um, however, as the fire grew, the southwest wind intensified and became superheated, causing structures to catch fire from the heat and from burning debris blown by the wind. And around midnight, debris blew across the river and landed on roofs and the south side gas works. So the fire crossed over into Chicago's south side. About that time, Mayor Roswell B. Mason sent messages to nearby towns asking for help. The courthouse caught fire, and he ordered that building to be evacuated and the prisoners who were jailed in the basement released. Around 2.30 a.m., the cupola of the courthouse collapsed, sending the great bell crashing down. There's a meteorological condition called fire whirl, where the hot air from a fire rises and then hits the cooler air above it which can create like a tornado-like kind of spinning effect. So fire whirl intensified the spread of the Chicago fire. Debris was blown across the main branch of the Chicago River to a railroad car carrying kerosene. And so the fire crossed over into the city's north side. The waterworks building caught fire somewhere in here which cut off water supply to fire hydrants and hamstrung the firefighters' efforts to extinguish the fire, which was pretty, I mean, obviously pretty out of control by this point. Finally, late into the evening of October 9, it started to rain, but the fire had already started to burn itself out, having consumed much of the, like all the densely, kind of densely populated areas. Once the fire had ended, the remains were still too hot for a survey of the damage to be completed for many days. But eventually the city determined that the fire destroyed an area about four miles long and on average about three quarters of a mile wide, encompassing more than 2,000 acres. More than 73 miles of roads were destroyed, 120 miles of sidewalk, 2,000 lampposts, 17,500 buildings, and $222 million in property Those are $1871, about a third of the city's valuation, the contemporary equivalent in, I think this is $2022. I haven't, you know, I haven't done the math to to convert it myself. 5.4 billion, billion, 5.4 billion, if you're you're looking for kind of a, a more contemporary estimate. The city was put under martial law for two weeks to protect from looting and violence in the aftermath under General Philip H. Sheridan's command with a mix of regular troops, militia units, police, and a specially organized civilian group, 1st Regiment of Chicago Volunteers, who oversaw things until October 24th when they were relieved of their duties and uh, volunteers were mustered out of service. Chicago in 1871 had about 324,000 inhabitants, 90 to 100,000 of whom were left homeless in the aftermath of the Chicago fire. 120 bodies were recovered, but the death toll certainly was higher than that and estimated to be about like perhaps as high as 300. There were certainly bodies that were not recovered and were, you know, incinerated. Yeah. In the days and weeks following the fire, monetary donations flowed into Chicago from around the country and abroad, along with donations of food, clothing, and other goods. There were major donations from New York, St. Louis, London, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Buffalo, um, and many other places. Milwaukee, along with other nearby cities, helped by sending firefighting equipment. Food, clothing, and books were bought 
brought by train from all over the continent. After the fire age, Burgess of London proposed an English book donation effort to spur a free library in Chicago to express their sympathy. Libraries in Chicago had prior to the fire had been private with with membership fees. And in April 1872, the city council passed the ordinance to establish the free Chicago Public Library, starting with the donation from the United Kingdom of more than 8,000 books. Chicago had been rapidly expanding at that time, and so the fire led to, you know, conversations about industrialization in America. There were there were some also who felt that Americans should return to a more old-fashioned way of life and that the fire was because of people ignoring traditional morality. <laughs> so <laughs> some things never change. And some believed that a lesson to be learned from the fire was that cities needed to improve their building techniques, which, you know, that sounds that sounds eminently sensible to me. Mm. The city began to rewrite its fire standards, spurred by the efforts of leading insurance executives, fire prevention reformers, and so on. And Chicago soon developed one of the country's leading firefighting forces. By the world's Columbian Exposition, 22 years later, Chicago was rebuilt and recovered, hosted more than 21 million visitors at that World's Fair. And I think that I I, I may have mentioned this way, way back when I did that World's Fair deep dive, you know, that, that this World's Fair was in some ways kind of a, a celebration of, of Chicago's recovery after the Great Fire. In 1956, the remaining structures on the original O'Leary property at 558 West DeCoven Street were torn down for construction of the Chicago Fire Academy, a training facility for Chicago firefighters known as the Quinn Fire Academy or the Chicago Fire Department Training Facility. There were a handful of buildings that made it through the Great Chicago Fire, and which stand to this day, including St. Michael's Church, the Chicago Water Tower, Chicago Avenue Pumping Station, and St. Ignatius College Prep. Um, so, I mean, that's not that's not a ton, but that's that's more than I had known about the Great Chicago Fire. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. The, my last deep dive was Sylvia Plath, and that was a sad story. And this <laughs> also is sad. Somehow it feels less personal, right? Like, it's it- like... When yeah. one person dies, it's a tragedy. And when 300 people die, it's a statistic, right? Like, right, yeah. But yeah, but they were, you know, it, this is also a tragedy. Anyway, are you ready for a quiz? I am ready for a quiz. I figured you were. This is a quiz themed around great fire. Okay. All right. So we're going to kind of start at the great Chicago fire and then kind of go from there. So question one, let's start in Chicago. Back before his Friday Night Lights and Bloodline roles and other roles, Kyle Chandler starred in a CBS family-friendly fantasy comedy drama set in Chicago, which ran from 1996 to 2000. In one episode, which atypically featured time travel, he is sent back in time to 1871, where he attempts to prevent the Great Chicago fire. What was the name of the series, a reference to the mechanism by which the protagonist is given warnings of impending ca- catastrophes he then attempts to prevent? Oh, geez. 96 to 2000. I wouldn't have really paid attention to that. Yeah, I guess not. You were young. Oh, yeah, I was young. I was so young, and you were so old. It was on right after Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, my favorite television show. <laughs> Yes. Okay. I'm sure I've heard this before. Like, I'm I'm sure I'll recognize it. Let's see. Device that alerts him of impending disasters. 
Did I say device? If I said device, or I, yeah, I, know, I think mechanism like is mechanism, what I said. Yeah, yes, but like, yeah, yeah. but device is not not incorrect. Just think like plot device, not mechanical right, right, device. Mechanical yeah. yeah, I think I can probably Dang. come up with it. Hmm. The title of the show is alliterative, and it comes in the form of the Chicago Sun Time. That. Is I mean that's a newspaper. Mm-hmm. I do know this. Oh my god! He can. <laughs> he he like. He like sees the the headline or the mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. of the of the next day or something. Yep. What the what the yep, hell is that called? Oh my god! <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna get it. What is it called? It's called Early Edition. Early Edition. Yeah. That's what it, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. So the protagonist, Gary Hobson, gets an early edition of the next day's newspaper every day where he can see what terrible things are about to happen and try and prevent them. Um, and so there's this one, there's one episode where he like gets a head injury and like, you know, it's like, is it time travel? Is it a dream sequence? He ends up back at, like two days before the great Chicago fire trying to prevent it. But you know, like rules of time travel, you can't prevent a major historical event mm. that is known to have happened. Really? Yeah. So, so yeah, that didn't work out for him. But I think there was like, in in that episode, from what I can gather from the summaries I can find online in that episode, like there was kind of a framing thing that was happening in the in the present where he did prevent something. Mm. Early edition has a 73% on Rotten Tomatoes, but there is no legit streaming source for it. Bummer. Yeah. There was a reboot in development, but it was canceled. So that's too bad. I remember thinking it was a really cool show when I was, I don't know, however old I was at that time. Sure. (laughs) All right. Well, you're at 10 points because you got the the first question. What am I talking about? Correct. Question two. On the same day as the Great Chicago Fire, there were numerous major fires. The one in Peshtigo, Wisconsin, was the deadliest wildfire in American history, with casualties estimated between 1,500 to 2,500. Another set of fires at the same time devastated the towns of Alpena, Holland, Manistee, and Port Huron. These fires, those four, are collectively known, or the, the fire that fires that devastated those towns are collectively known as the great fire of what state? Okay. 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 I do not know, but those Port Huron makes me think of Lake Huron. Hmm. I have to decide where I think Port Huron is. Hmm. I was thinking Pennsylvania or New York. And now I'm realizing I think I might have the Great Lakes mixed up. Could be Ohio. Oh, goodness. Let's see. I think I am going to say. I'll say Ohio. You're not far away. It's Michigan. 
It is Michigan. Okay. Yeah. Dang it. I was like, oh, maybe it is Michigan. Maybe it's yeah. up there. Yeah. yeah. Holland Holland would have been the tip off for me. Holland, Michigan. But that may be, that may have to do with my particular church circles. I know a lot of people who went to, like, who, who have, have associations with Holland, Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Great Fire was this sort of set of wildfires at the same time as the Great Chicago Fire that devastated those four cities and towns. Yeah. Wow. And then the... The the Peshtigo fire was a big surprise to me. I did not know about this. Oh. It's the the deadliest wildfire in American history, one of the I mean, one of the the deadliest catastrophes in American history. A remote lumber town had a really devastating fire, and the telegraph lines were destroyed before they could get word out. Oof. Um, yeah, and the casualty count is so the the dis, there's the huge discrepancy because all of the records were destroyed. And there were very few survivors, um, you know, so they couldn't come up with a list of a comprehensive list of, you know, who was missing to work out exactly how many people had died. Yeah. All right. Well, you're still at 10 points, but that's okay. We've got a few questions left to go. Question three. On July 19th, 64 AD, the Great Fire of Rome started in the shops around what historic building, which was a venue for chariot racing and public games? And we've discussed it before on the podcast. Don't do this to me. <laughs> I'm going to assume the Circus Maximus. Yes. Yes, it's the Circus Maximus. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. I had some, some Circus it's Maximus okay. trauma. It's fine. It's important to know. And it's fair. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have anything else to say about that. If you anybody wants the whole story about the Circus Maximus and the Great Fire of Rome, go find it in the back catalog. It's there for you. Yeah. All right. Twenty points. Question four: A bakery on Pudding Lane was the site where the Great Fire of London started. Pudding Lane. <laughs> Pudding Lane. The fictional character of Tom Canty is also a resident of Pudding Lane. In what novel, which was coincidentally also the subject of a Miss Daily Double this week? The other central character of that work lives in much more luxurious accommodations. Of what novel you said? Yes. Was that The Prince and the Pauper? It was The Prince and the Pauper. Yes. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I was trying to figure out what I could ask about The Great Fire of London, which would not be Christopher Wren or A Huge Towner. And then I found out, <laughs> I found out that, that the, the, the protagonist of the, uh, the the pauper of the Prince and the Pauper lives on Pudding Lane. It was there it is. Yeah. So so yeah, Tom Canty is from Pudding Lane. His counterpart, the prince, of course, is Edward Tudor, the Prince of Wales, son of Henry VIII, who would become Henry, the, sorry, who would become Edward the Sixth. Is that right? I think that's right. Set in 1547, it tells the story of two young boys who were born on the same day and are identical in appearance. Tom Canty, a pauper who lives with his abusive alcoholic father in awful court off Pudding Lane in London, and Edward VI of England, son of Henry VIII of England. I feel like it, in 1882, it's a novel about a huge coincidence, and now I can only think about like like Mori Povich, right? Is that the is that the guy, you are the father guy? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, all right. Anyway, that that's neither here nor there. All right, cool. All right, so you're at 30 points. Going into question five. Moving from London to New London. In 1937, more than, oh, this is a downer, more than 300 teachers and students died in an explosion in New London, Texas. Within weeks, new state legislation mandated that malodorants, often called mercaptans, be added to what? 
to prevent similar tragedies in the future. This quickly became the industry standard worldwide. Be natural gas. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. And I, I'm stretching the great fire category here to try and get, you know, kind of a science-y question in. Nobody calls this a great fire, but it is a historically significant <laughs> one, especially yeah. because of its you know, it's it's impact on legislation and, you know, industry practices. A gas leak in a crawl space under a school went unnoticed until it ignited and caused a huge and, you know, very deadly explosion. Yeah. And the incident led to the standard pra- practice of adding a compound to natural gas to give it its distinctive rotten egg odor so that people would be able to detect gas leaks by the smell and prevent similar tragedies in the future. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You're at 40 points. And what am I going to call the category for this? Let's call it global puns. Global puns. You know how I love puns. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't know how to think about that. So I am going to go with 25. All right. I hope I, I hope it was a good category title. I hope it was a, a good one for the question. All right, for 65 points, if you are correct, China has a complex system of internet censorship, which limits access to foreign information source, sources and blocks foreign internet tools, among other things. <laughs> keeping okay. the theme, keeping the theme in mind, what is the punny name for this huge structure, which was coined in 1997? I would guess it is the Great Firewall. Yes, it is the great, yes, the great firewall of China. You are correct. Yay. So you win 65 points. Uh, Yeah. The term was coined by Australian Sinologist, China scholar, Jeremy Barmay. And I realized after I wrote this question, it was really liked it too much to take it out that this is my second Chinese censorship question in three quizzes. So sorry about that. The you great care fire- very deeply. Yeah. The Great Firewall blocks sites, including Google, Facebook, YouTube, Wikipedia, Reddit, and most of the other ones that any of us spend our time on. Yeah. There are workarounds that some users in China use to access censor sites, VPNs, etc. Although that's all in flux and keeps getting cracked down on and, you know, new things pop up and you know how it goes. But yeah, great firewall of China. So hey, nice work. And thanks for making a podcast with me. Yeah, well, thank you. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you have a minute to do that. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are Jeopardy fans, let them know about us. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables One. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. <laughs>